Hey, thanks for tuning in. Today I'm speaking with Liza Bowersox, who is the Vice President of Valuation at Venture First and an accredited senior appraiser from the American Society of Appraisers. Today we're going to be speaking about business valuation, and this is what Liza does for a living. She spends her time valuing uh, closely held companies, small uh, publicly traded companies in a variety of fields like healthcare, technology, agriculture, manufacturing, and she just brings a wealth of knowledge to the subject of both the investing side of valuation, but also um, the exit side of valuation or selling a business. In our conversation, we talk a lot about how she thinks about valuation and how she thinks about um, what companies can do to increase their valuation and, and some of the common mistakes and misconceptions that founders have when it comes to valuation. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I think there's a, a lot of great information in here, particularly for early stage companies as they're thinking about what they need to do to set themselves up for success as it pertains to raising capital in the future. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Liza Bowersox. Welcome, Liza Bowersox. I'm so excited um, and glad that you have joined me today to talk about business valuation. This is a topic that I have a ton of questions about and a lot of business owners and founders often are confused about. And, and I know that there are a lot of people that can benefit from learning how to think better about the value of their business and what it might look like to one day sell their business. So thank you. Thanks, Alex. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah. So first, um, can you share a little bit about what you do at Venture First and, and what Venture First is? Sure. So I, I run the valuation practice at Venture First and Venture First overall is a, I'd say we're an advisory company that works with growth stage companies, most of our clients are focused on pursuing long-term growth and most of them exit strategies. And so we do valuation services as well as capital strategy formation and we help companies with kind of their CFO services and financial management along the way to make sure that they are primed and ready for sale when the markets are ready. Cool. How did you get into this? I started my career with Arthur Anderson um, quite a while ago, and I got to work with really big companies, helping to um, evaluate opportunities for M&A and for just major capital project investment. And that was great. I enjoyed doing that sort of modeling work, but was always intrigued by working in startups. I started my career in the late 90s, and the best jobs at that time were working with startups. And for a variety of reasons, I didn't go that path. But I've kind of had it always in me to think about working with growing companies and entrepreneurs. So seven years ago, I kind of uh, pivoted my own career and decided to focus exclusively on business valuation. And my client range since then has been a whole lot of early stage, growth stage startup companies, but also old economy, you know, family-owned businesses, all sorts of different entrepreneurial ventures. I think the common theme in all of that is I serve primarily private, closely held companies. Okay. That's really cool. That is a very, very cool background. I think so. Um, so I guess to start off, what are some of the key factors that you look at when you're trying to establish the value of an early stage company? So I think the establishing the value of any any company, you have to start with the markets. And you want to look at what you can directly observe 
from private entities, uh, which is difficult because that information is generally kept pretty confidential, but also public companies, um, especially those that are acquiring private companies, it's easier to get really rich and detailed information. But the challenge with publics is that they're generally not a great relevant comparison for early stage startup types of companies. But you always start with the market. Um, one thing we look at for early stage is who's out there raising capital, who's investing in those sorts of companies, and how the financing terms and financing valuations are shaking out in hopefully recent market transactions. Um, if I'm working with a client that's recently raised capital themselves, you get into dissecting that funding round and sorting out how the investors priced the risk and the growth potentials of the company, um, keeping in mind what form of capital they raise. So preferred stock is not going to necessarily directly correlate to the value, let's say, of common stock or what the founder themselves holds in the company. Um, but really, I mean, the good part of it for me and the fun of it is just looking at two things, how much um, cash money could be put into the pockets of the founder and the investors based on the assets that they're developing. And when could that cash be coming? Um, I think the simple formula is the value of something is the measured financial benefit of their product or service multiplied by the addressable market. And that's the market that that particular company can access and hopefully dominate. Um, so, you know, you get into complicated things about calibrating the risks and the growth potential, but overall, valuation is based on what cash money an idea or a product or a service can generate and how many people you can reach in offering that product or service. Got it. And so when you were first talking about the market, um, I guess I was thinking about not necessarily like the people that were out there who would be purchasing or using the service. I was thinking about like the other companies in that space. Right. Uh, are those two different things or that is that all kind of the same thing when, you, when you're making like a comparison um, between like a company that you might be valuing and other companies on the market? Are you, does that make sense? What? Yeah, I think, it, I think it does. So, I mean, a lot of times you have a company that begins with the intention of pursuing like a business to business strategy. So you think about the ultimate users of that are not necessarily people that are going to be concerned with your profitability, but it's their utility of what you're developing. Right. Um, so I think you have to figure out who your market is and designing your strategy, whether it's a profit-driven strategy or a growth, just revenue, getting as many products out the door and into the hands of end users as possible. Very different strategies depending on what ultimately the exit plan is. Right, and, and in terms of like the size of the market though, it's, it's the size of the people that might be putting down money. Is that correct? It's the size of the people that could be putting down money. So, yes, I mean, the degree that there's Not investor investors demand. Like yeah, but ultimately, um, I think it's, it's the valuation is going to be driven by the amount of people willing to pay money for what you're doing. Right, yeah, exactly. So if you're, I mean, it, that, that would then distinguish whether your end game is a more limited B2B strategy, like I suggested. So you're in pursuit of a certain number of strategic acquirers versus an IPO strategy where you're looking to get your product into the hands of as many people around the planet as possible. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I think I understand that. I may have more questions later, but I um, <laughs> want to keep moving here. So one of the big, biggest things that I wanted to talk to you about are, you know, some of the misconceptions 
um, that founders or business owners have when they think about their valuation, particularly early on. Um, can you talk through some of the things that you've seen or observed in terms of those, you know, mistakes or misconceptions? Yeah, it's it's actually a great week to be fielding this question, and that's because we have so many really interesting IPO events going on right now, and there's so much talk about valuations and how VC valuations were just so dead wrong and, and that sort of thing. And I, I think that when founders are thinking about what they think they know about valuations and what is what publicly available information is out there, it's important to realize a valuation needs to be framed in, in terms of what's being valued. So if you're looking at venture capital valuations or if you go to you know, Crunchbase or PitchBook and you see press releases that say XYZ company just raised a $20 million Series B funded by um, New Richmond Ventures or, or whoever, you have to think about what exactly that valuation means. What did NRV invest in? They bought preferred stock probably. And that preferred stock is gonna come with economic rights. It's going to come with control rights. And in pricing that realm, the investors are probably less concerned with that headline valuation and more concerned with how much of the cap table they bought with their invested capital and their ability to exert control rights to protect their capital, to steer the direction of the company in ways that they find beneficial, hopefully to the company, but definitely to their limited partners. And um, I think that I get into a lot of awkward conversations with founders when I'll do a valuation and I come up with a value of the company considerably less than say the post money or, or maybe even the pre money. And that's because intrinsically the company is, is worth um, what the assets are worth not necessarily what a preferred security with a lot of rights to dividends and you know complicated things when the exit happens. It, it just boils down to hopefully an intrinsic value of the assets and not necessarily the value of that investor's rights to control and keep their stake as a company um, as they, you know, they want it to be at the exit event when things are fully diluted. So, th so there's essentially like a premium, like for those investors o over like the value of the assets in order to kind of get that control and that position. Is that yeah, a, a way I, to think about it? I or? think so. I mean, when, when, a, when a, a round is priced, it's a pretty simple formula. You look at like total fully diluted shares outstanding, and that's how they run their calculation. And it compresses the cap table to basically one one class of equity, assuming everything goes well at the end of the day, everybody converts to common, but they're not buying common stock and they're buying a security that has the rights in some cases to act like debt, in some cases to act like equity, and in some cases to act like both. So you, you would assume that it's a forward-looking pricing that implies a, a premium on the assets at the date because they, they expect the company's going to grow at a rapid rate. If a VC's putting their money in, they're expecting early stage minimum 40% annual rate of return on their capital. So growth is assumed. And if you break it down to removing all those downside protections, what the balance sheet is worth on a given date, it's almost always considerably less than the financing transaction would suggest. Okay, okay. So what does that practically mean for founders who are out there thinking about how much money, 
you know, they can realistically raise um, based on, you know, what their what, what their company has at the moment. I mean, a lot of, you know, um, technology companies in particular, you know, what are their assets? I mean, is it just the intellectual property that they have, the software that they've developed, and and or does there need to be more? Does there need to be, you know, a certain amount of recurring revenue or... Does that make sense yeah. of, of like what, of like, cause no. sometimes it feels like you don't, you have an idea, you have, um, uh, maybe a proof of concept. Right. It's a great and incredibly relevant question again this week. Cause you look at the companies that are out there seeking public IPOs. And the question is what exactly are these companies? What are they technology <laughs> companies? Are they real estate companies? Are they lifestyle brands? And what are those intangible assets even worth? And the market you know, you can look at what a lot of companies that are mostly intangible based, and that's most most of the companies on the public exchanges right now are heavily weighted toward intangibles. Um, but you think about for early stage, the sum of a company's balance sheet, you've got, you know, probably very little in the way of fixed assets, maybe some cash, maybe some inventory, maybe some receivables. Often there aren't all that many receivables. Often there's not a great... Um, you know, foothold in monthly, annually recurring revenue. But what you have is your technology. What you have is your brand, possibly. What you have is your workforce. Maybe you have some, you know, patented sorts of things. But I think what you have, by and large, if you're very early stage, um, most of the literature out there would say your management team and your workforce and the advisors that are willing to represent to investors that they stand behind that company, that's probably what the investors are going to stake their capital on until a point where you see kind of the, the larger VCs that get involved in, in rounds like post B, post C. At that point, you can start to put a value on EBITDA, you can put a value on revenue. In some cases, you can put a, a value on, on users. Um, and then ultimately start to map out what someone might pay for that company and what a particular someone, if you're marketing toward an, a strategic acquirer, who are the likely buyers of that company? You start to do kind of like probability-weighted exit models. That's what the underwriters do when they price an IPO. And again, it boils down to what are people willing to pay for what you have? And at what point have you reached... This, the level of scale that that exit window opens. And then what's the risk of keeping capital in the company over that span of time? Gotcha. So if I, uh, I guess by way of my next question, you know, if I'm an early founder, like what, what should I avoid doing? Like what are some of the mistakes that you see some early stage companies make during like a funding round as it pertains to, to valuation? I think for the early ones, and this can be really difficult if you're operating in a market where you don't have a whole lot of early stage investors. And the problem is a lot of times, you know, the angel groups and possibly individual investors aren't terribly familiar with the norms of early stage investing. And they think about things based on other investments they've done, like real estate or private equity funds or something like that. And I think what you really want to try to do is keep things simple and keep things as, I guess, as normal, as, as typical as, as early stage rounds 
um, typically play out. And you can get information about what that looks like from a variety of different sources. I think the best ones are probably incubators or accelerators or the universities in your community. But when I see things go really wrong, it's usually because a founder gets desperate for capital and starts taking checks from people that aren't necessarily the investment partners that you would have long term. And these are people that expect things like cash dividends along the way, redemption rights, or ask you to do strange things with your corporate structures that maybe play into their tax advantages more so than the company's best interests. And then along the way, you have to untangle all of that and deal with people whose expectations might not have been realistic to begin with. So I would say the first thing I see that I wish people could avoid is overcomplicating the mechanics of the financings early in the game. I think the other thing is you want to think about your investment partners in the same way you would your life partners. And these are people that are putting their trust and faith in you, and you want to make sure that you want to be with them for the long haul. And it, it sounds a little bit disrespectful to say this, but you, you kind of want to avoid dumb money. I think a lot of times what you get from your capital partners is not just their money, but hopefully their ability to influence the company toward the same direction that you as the founder want to take it. A lot of, a lot of times that's helping match good future executives with the company or form syndicates with similarly-minded investors that can help um, expose the company to the eventual acquirers or to the capital markets um, when that great day comes and everyone's able to liquidate and um, hopefully prosper and go on and do it again somewhere else. Yeah, and, and, and to that end, I mean, do you, is there a point that it's like too early where you, where you just run more risk of, of attracting the type of not good money or dumb money? Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I think, I mean, you don't have to, a lot of companies are bootstrapping a great deal longer than they used to be. And one thing that I see sometimes, actually I haven't seen this in a few years, but especially with really young founders, I saw a lot of this in 2013. You'd have, um, uh, you know, a kid who has kind of an entrepreneurial dream and their parents, their grandmother, someone would give them a huge slug of cash just to develop what they're after. And if you have, you know, a true angel or someone like that that can give you the seed money to build your first product prototype or maybe to hire a fractional developer or something like that, that's fantastic. But in terms of seeking more, um, I guess you could say, less benefactors and more market-oriented investors, the longer the longer you can wait to establish true asset value, I think the better your prospects are for aligning with the right capital providers. And there's a lot of things you can do through accelerators and the incubators that will give you a little bit of seed capital, that will give you some free resources. Um, I think the longer you can put off raising big money, the better. Yeah. Yeah, that's good advice. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and that also speaks to, you know, the longer you wait, I, I would assume the higher valuation you can get, which also means that the um, less you have to give away of your company. Right. And I think that's the other thing. When you're thinking about, you want to you want to begin with the end in mind. And I think you want to map out as best you can. No one really knows how the future is going to play out, but you want to map out what you think your capital path 
is going to look like eventually, how much cash it's going to take. And do your research, figure out what things cost, but figure out how much money you need to raise and in what increments you need to raise it. Over what period of time? Well, I mean, I think you, I think I read, was it Peloton? I think raised half a billion dollars less than a year before the IPO. I, I think you have to look at what you're after and at what point you think, if you think you can get to a point where your operating cash flow meets the growth needs of the company and allows you to grow and capture enough of a market to get you to your desired exit event, that's probably where you, you want to get to. And it could be you get generally to that point and you see an opportunity to take on a slug of growth capital or maybe start to take on less expensive capital. Like, um, you know, there's a lot of venture debt out there that comes with pretty light warrant terms. Look at maybe alternative sources, less expensive sources of capital um, to push you through to if you, I mean, if there's an opportunity to go for just like a massive incremental um, growth arc for the company with a little bit more money or a lot more money, you think about that when it happens. But that's that's at your option at the point in time where you've really established something right. where you have options. Got it. So... And I guess this question is for early stage, but really for any stage company, what, what can companies be doing to increase their value, um, particularly as it pertains to exiting and or selling their company? I, I guess those are two different things, you know, invest, get, right. getting investment and then also uh, I, exiting. Yeah, I think it's all the same. I, okay. think, I think the first thing you do is you set yourself up to execute well. So starting with the early stage, you have to have an idea. I'm, I'm starting with an assumption that you've, you have an idea that you think is going to create a meaningful economic benefit to enough people that it's first worth forming a venture around, second attractive enough that you can you can secure financing partners to build that company along with you. You really want to set yourself to execute well because you can put all kinds of um, legal moats around your intellectual property. You can try to contract around you know protecting what you have, but at the end of the day, You've got to go out. You've got to execute. You have to beat down the competition, stake your claim, and scale your company. So I think that starts with knowing what you know, knowing what you don't know. A lot of founders know their product and they know their vision very well, but they don't necessarily know how to run a company. So I think surrounding yourself with the best management team possible, correcting for any imbalances that you might have on the founding team is really important. I think um, investors are gonna place capital at the higher valuations with a proven entrepreneur and their management team. If you're, not, if you're not proven, which you certainly don't have to be, but you need to carefully source your mentors and make sure you build something around yourself to make the investors confident that their capital is protected. I, I mean, I tell this story and it's, it's, it sounds crazy, but it's true. I'll, I had a client one time that came to me and said, I need you to do a valuation. And I said, well, all right, you started a new company. They said, well, I'm, I'm thinking about it. But I was thinking about it out loud uh, at a bar the other night, and a VC was sitting next to me, and he had heard of who I was. And he said, that's fine. I'll send you a term sheet. I'm going to put $20 million into your new company. This guy was like, I don't, I don't even know what my new company is yet, but I've got seed capital, and I'm going to figure something out. I need you to value my company. <laughs> I mean, that's a, it sounds crazy, but I see that in, I, look, I work with a lot of life science companies. The same thing happened 
couple years ago, I had a, a, a CFO that I work with a lot come to me and say, this VC has put down $60 million with a team of scientists, and they're going to cure cancer. I was like, great. Wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's like cool. they don't they don't have any IP yet. They haven't really licensed any molecules or aligned with any research universities, but they have the best scientific advisory board you've ever seen. And I need you to value this company. And what you're seeing here is that these capital providers, they bet on people. Um, mm. ideas are good. <laughs> um, but I think that if you've had you know, a serial entrepreneur that has a great track record of getting companies through exits, and most people do this not just once. Once you've done it well once, you're gonna go back again. That's probably where the capital gravitates to. So finding someone like that that can help you, um, you know, you'll have to give up a fair amount of your company to that individual, but that's, a, that's an easy path to getting a higher valuation out the gate. I think the second thing is having a cash management plan. Like I mentioned, mapping out your capital path, understanding how much you're going to need along the way. And one of the worst things you can do is, is basically run out of money and have to go to the markets in a state of desperation. That is going to hurt your valuation. And it's also not necessarily going to breed confidence among your investors if you can't at least have a plan for um, spending well and, and getting to at least a couple milestones with your round before you have to raise again. The third thing I think about is, I call this keeping the hair off the dog. And at Venture First, that's a lot of what we do with early companies, trying to get them off on the right footing, trying to make sure that they're operating in a way that they're ready to go through the due diligence process. They have a data room with the typical set of documents that investors are going to want to see good and at the ready. Because if you if you do a pitch and you have an investor that says, I'm ready to start talking terms, you want to be ready to say, great, here's my data room. Turn it over to them and let them do what they're going to do with when their diligence. When you say data room, can you just define that a little bit more? Yeah. it's I mean, generally speaking, a data room is a secure file that you create with the purpose of sharing with investors who um, you'll sign a non-disclosure agreement with. But it basically gives them... Um, the evidence that you're you know, a real going concern, that you've got a business charter, you have operating documents, they'll want to see your balance sheet, they'll want to see your financials, they'll want to go through a series of disclosures about how you've protected your intellectual property, how you can prove that you have rights to your intellectual property, how you can show that you have employment agreements with key individuals that you are dependent on to run your company. Um, Alex, I'm sure you have some ideas about what yes. sorts of things should be in a data room. But <laughs> yeah, for sure. I would say that you'd probably agree it's a standard set of things. Yeah. And it's not something you do once. I think just maintaining that going forward saves a lot of time. You don't really want to be in a position where you're awkwardly scrambling to find like your closing set from a, a security offering. That should be something that you keep securely in a data room at the ready. But you'd be surprised at how... I mean, you probably not. Maybe you I'm wouldn't really be, not well, surprised. surprised. <laughs> People who I'm not surprised, but I think you're shooting that. yourself in, in the foot. And I think that, again, building confidence with investors that you have your act together, that you're organized, that you're going to be able to provide that information, not just when you're taking their money, but on an ongoing basis. Because, spoiler alert, they're going to have information rights. They're going to need to do their own reporting on the value of their holdings. And they need you to be able to share you know, board level information along the way at regular increments. So just getting into a cadence of 
protecting, maintaining, updating that information. It's just like an operating reality that you have to be ready for if you're taking outside money. I think the other thing is, you know, just keeping it's a, keeping the warts off the company, making sure you don't run into any legal issues, any employment issues, any questions about whether, I think one big thing is making sure that as you're forming your idea and your, let's say, technology or your own IP, make sure you own it. Yeah. If, you're, if you're moonlighting and kind of working a day job, make sure that when you separate from your day job that it's clearly understood what you're going to do and that you're not taking uh, IP that anyone else might claim title to down the road. That certainly creates an awkward situation and can kill a financing. Oh, man, that's a nightmare. Yeah. Um, so can I ask about number, the, the second one, you talked about cash management. Right. That seems tricky because it does seem like it would be logical that you kind of raise money and then you go out and you spend that money at whatever your burn rate is. And then when you run out, you raise more. Right. But it sounds like you're saying that's not the best idea. Well, I think, I think you want to understand when you're going to run out of money. And but to raise well the before then. Right. To, to raise well before then, have a burn budget. Understand how much, what you're going to accomplish. Have a milestone plan. What you're going to accomplish with that slug of capital the first time. Oftentimes you see investors will do what's called a tranched financing. And if they know that you're super early and it's inevitable that you're going to need more money down the road to protect themselves, right? Like if they, what they don't want to do is set themselves up from missing out on the later rounds if things are going well. So what they could say is, we're committing to $5 million of capital and you'll get $2 million of that day one. And then upon completion of you know this milestone, that milestone, there's more money coming your way and we commit to that. And if for whatever reason something happens and we don't fund those later rounds, founder, you're protected because our, our prior capital, we're gonna agree to convert that down to common. So it's um, in, in pharma life science, you see that all the time when it's, you know, basically it's a binary outcome. Either you establish the efficacy of your, your drug or you don't. And it's known that, you know, if you, if you get through, let's just say your preclinical phase and you're going to file for a phase one trial, you're going to need a heck of a lot more capital. And it's good to know that an investor is ready to stand by and, and give you that money to their own benefit when it's time. Cool. So that makes sense. I mean, and, and I think that, you know, a lot of early stage companies, they, they're not even thinking that far in advance and they need to be, you know, early on. And so I think that's, that's really helpful. We're running out of time, but um, any other, you know, final pieces of advice that you have um, for, for, you know, tech companies or early stage companies that are thinking about um, these issues? I think, I think the one thing that when I see the entrepreneur, I was just looking through my LinkedIn the other day, honestly, because I was curious about WeWork, and I was inter just interested to see how many people I've worked with before that are over there now. And what's amazing is how, I guess, how the people that are the most nimble, the people that are balancing their time well, you know, building out their product, but at the same time, keeping their ear to the ground, keeping a good eye on how the competitive landscape is forming around them and making sure that 
they're ready to pivot if they need to. Yeah. For example, if you're pursuing like a, I have a client that's originally started pursuing a business to consumer model and they found that there was just a whole lot of competition in that space and they quick pivoted to more of an enterprise business to business model and immediately with a little bit of retrenching investment found that their level of stable recurring revenue and they decreased their churn by tenfold their contracts once they'd established them and served their clients well were so much larger so much stickier but if they hadn't really been able to be nimble and been prepared and not kind of operating with blinders on the first vision i think a nimble founder is statistically a little bit more likely to pan out well in the end and mm. again you have to have investors that understand what they're doing understanding that the game changes along the way and they need to be prepared to support the founder, back the founder, stay with the vision, um, hopefully leading toward the best outcome for the whole cap table. Cool. Well, that makes a lot of sense and that's really, really helpful. Uh, I could talk about this for a really long time, but we're, we're actually out of time. I'll mention one other thing. Okay, go I'm ahead. Sorry. No, I, you're I think, good. I think for the founder, when you talk about cash management and the capital path, I think it's also helpful to make sure that you're protecting yourself and you understand at the end of the day, maybe for your first venture, you're not going to own so much of the company at the end of it, but just understand clearly when you're selling your equity away, just know what you're going to end up with at the end of the day. And when you're hiring people, the thought is, you know, equity is free. Just issue out options. Don't pay people in cash as much as stock. But then what does that leave you with? Yeah. And I think managing that dilution for the founder, a lot of times you see disappointing surprises when things like convertible note rounds come into play and people don't understand post-conversion what that's going to leave yeah. early investors and the founder with. Yeah, and also being able to plan for multiple rounds of financing. Sometimes people are just thinking, okay, I'm giving away this much of my company, but they're really just thinking about one round, right. maybe two. Right. But it's much more likely that there, if, if the venture works, that there will be three, four, five rounds of funding? Absolutely. Yeah, I'd say at least three or four. And a lot of times within rounds, you see a, an A, an A1, an A2. But yeah, I think that, again, hopefully the valuations will keep up and you'll be able to maintain a reasonable amount of ownership of your company. Um, and, and again, it, maybe it's your first venture. And the second one, I always see the serial investors make a much stronger argument for keeping the valuations high or bootstrapping as long as they can so that they keep as much of what they built as possible. Yeah, that's great. So um, up to you, but do, if people want to connect and learn more about what your work in Venture First or if they, they need some help with evaluation, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Absolutely. I think um, I can give you my information. I don't know if you put it up on Sure, the, I, can, I can add your information yeah, on, on in add the show it. notes. I'm all over LinkedIn, Liza Bowersox with Venture First, and our website is venturefirst.com. We, um, we work with companies. We're based in Louisville, Kentucky, but we work with companies literally all over the planet and um, absolutely love serving pretty much any industry that comes across our desk. Uh, everyone in the firm is an insatiably curious researcher, and that's probably the greatest joy is learning as we go and partnering with, in my view, some of the most exciting people on the planet. Excellent. Very cool. Well, thank you again for, for being on the show. Appreciate it. I enjoyed it. it. Thanks, Alex. All right.